Welcome to the Catholic Center. Welcome to the Catholic Center. Welcome to the Catholic Center. Hey everybody, this is Father Brian. I sat down with Hannah. Hannah was a graduate student here at the University of Georgia. She just finished her studies. And we talk about Catholic social teaching. And Catholic social teaching is something that I'm passionate about and it is something that she's passionate about. And she ended up teaching me a lot during this conversation. I think that you'll enjoy it. Another piece of the immigration puzzle which I didn't know about until I dug into it more is that um, is the people have a right to go back home piece from a Catholic perspective too which means that Catholics have a responsibility to contribute to um, efforts to create home environments where those people can flourish back at their home countries which I thought was really fascinating so like people have a right to return back to their home country if they want to which means that we have the responsibility to either like help create peace there or to stop creating tension there if our country is contributing to tension there um, so that those people, if they want to return back home, can, which was a piece of the puzzle that I had never really heard of before. It was always like a reception piece of the puzzle and not so much like a, we should contribute to what's going on there so that they can also go home, which I think I had always shied away from because I was like scared of mission work. Because mission work can also get really complicated, Catholic social teaching wise. So I think I just shied away from it. But to toxic charity. Yeah, I don't know. It's complicated, but yeah, immigration's a good sort of case study to talk about Catholic social teaching. I think it's really easy to over over complicate it and to make it seem like a set of rules which I think is like the tendency in a lot of Catholic things is to turn this into a set of rules of like, here's how you should operate or here's how you should navigate the situation as a Catholic, which just ends up sounding very sterile. And being a Catholic is not a sterile thing. It's like a very organic thing. And as much as we end up writing things down on how to do it, it's not so much that we are writing a list and then following through on the list it's that we are reflecting on our experience according to our charism and sort of narrating that um so it's 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 reflecting on an expression that comes naturally to us as opposed to adhering to a list of rules does that make sense so I think it's just framing it in that way of like we reflect on the gospel and these are principles that that organically sort of crop up from the gospel. It's not that we are just slapping these rules down sort of sterilely. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you... apply these go apply these principles or themes to everyday life. Mm-hmm. To all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. To all aspects of our human life. Right, because Catholic social teaching is not just something that you apply to, like, the policy realm or to law or to all these sort of um, public spheres. It's also something that can come up in family life, and it can come up in—it does come up in family life, or it comes up, you know, at the grocery store. It comes up everywhere that you live as a human um, because it comes up where you're being a social human, which is wherever you're being human, so— I just think if you turn it into a sort of a list of regulations, it feels like it's supposed to also be relegated to a very specific sphere, which you don't want to happen because then people don't end up applying it to every sort of aspect of their life, which it's important to do. You know? How does it come out in the grocery store in everyday life? Well, I think it, that's where you end up with conversations about diversity and where diversity springs up. So interacting with people from different backgrounds all over the place, um, from different experiences all over the place. And, um, and that's where you, you run into it in your family, um, people who come from different experiences of trauma 
or different experiences of, um, I don't know, just different, different backgrounds. Um, there's just different applications of Catholic social teaching in the way that you embrace people um, and the way that you embrace yourselves in different seasons of life, I think. You can apply Catholic social teaching to yourself. Um, but if you just look at Catholic social teaching as the way that you talk about immigration and not the way that you talk about yourself or your neighbor, um, you lose a really sort of beautiful aspect of the faith in the way that you can care for yourself and your neighbor um, and not just care for, you know, people who look different than you in this faraway country. Because I think it can sometimes only be talked about when you're talking about foreign places, um, which is just good, but not good enough, considering that it's like a really rich teaching that is perfectly applicable to the person living next to you, you know? Yeah, so how would you define Catholic social teaching? Oh my gosh, Father. I don't know. <laughs> well, in the sense of, like you're and saying, how it's an I'm using thing. it. Yeah. yeah. How are you using it? What What is this uh, understanding that you have? I think it's the posture that Christ puts on when he looks at us. That's how I would define it. And so... If I'm putting on the posture of Catholic social teaching, then I'm putting on the principles as they're written on, say, the USCCB's website or, um, you know, from the Vatican in the way that I'm doing my policy work, which is what I study, but also just the way that I'm interacting with my neighbor. So the solidarity, the subsidiarity, all these different principles, but it's also just the way that I'm receiving a human being. Um, and it's not just the way that I'm navigating complex issues regarding immigration and racism and all these different things. Um, so it's, it, to me, it's more of a posture and a, a, a lens and a perspective than it is like a, an issue area or a discipline, if that makes sense. How to view your neighbor mm-hmm. and how to treat your neighbor. And the... Um, really a lens of how to, what to sort of sift through before I attack a problem. So I'm going to go through subsidiarity before I attack a problem, or I'm going to go through solidarity before I attack a problem, and I'm going to put my biases through those processes before I try and act, um, sort of as a filter for my own humanity <laughs> and the the ways that I know that I'm going to sort of naturally falter and I'm going to run it through that filter first um, because I think Christ's posture is a really good filter for the ways that I naturally mess up, generally speaking. <laughs> the best posture. Yeah. <laughs> the best lens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Hannah. Yeah. What, uh, where are you coming from? Um, well, I am. Who is Hannah? Yeah. I am, I don't know if I call myself a fifth year. I'm not really a fifth year, I guess. I graduated my undergrad last year, so um, I did four years of undergrad here at UGA. And then I am a double dog, so I'm finishing my master's this year. I got to overlap by year, which was great. So I did everything through SPIA, which is the School of Public and International Affairs here. I did my undergrad in international affairs, my master's in international policy. So everything in the same wheelhouse. Um, hence why I'm here talking about policy. <laughs> and I am the youngest of four girls. I, don't, I mean, I think that's relevant just because, you know, made me who I am. Went to private Catholic school my whole life, which also made me who I am formation-wise. Um, and, yeah, I'm trying to think of other fast facts. I'm really short, five feet even. Sometimes I like to say I'm five feet, one-fourth inches, but it depends on my shoes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's who I am, where I'm coming from. Yeah, so how did you get into uh, policy work, international policy, an interest in that or a desire for that? Um, so I've always been pretty analytical. Um, as far as my faith goes... I 
like I said, I went to private Catholic school growing up. So I went on a lot of like school retreats, class retreats. And um, I always appreciated the like sweet princess narratives of my (laughs) all girls retreats, but also just never resonated with them and was like, cool, cool, cool. I want like meatier stuff, you know? Um, And so I did a lot of like digging on my own. Um, and then happened upon Catholic social teaching and was like, this is wild. (laughs) I want more of this. Um, And so I ended up finding this opportunity through a mom at my school who was taking high school girls to the UN every March for the Commission on the Status of Women, which is a UN conference that basically talks about um, like issues facing women and children globally. So Um, economic issues, agricultural issues, which is also economic issues, and then reproductive health issues, all these different things. Um, And so we were there kind of in like an observation capacity, but there was also some uh, opportunities to engage. So I just went on that for a couple of years in a row, was really interested. So by the time I got to college, um, this major fit in with kind of continuing to understand the UN structure and how different countries interacted with each other um, politically because I was more interested, I think, in global politics than I was in domestic politics. Um, So that's kind of how I ended up in the policy world. It's interesting. I don't know if nonviolence is in the conversation of Catholic social teaching, but Mm -hmm. it is. But they say that the power that resurrected Christ is the power of non Christian nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit, which resurrected Christ, is the power that is behind Christian nonviolence. And we see that with the saints, right? We see that with the martyrs specifically. And we see that with someone like Oscar Romero, uh, who was in El Salvador and, and um, resisted. Right? And there was this power that ultimately comes from that Christian resistance. And it's actually an offensive power as opposed to just a defensive, passive power. But it's the power of love. Uh, this Christian nonviolence is a, is a stance of love or a posture of love. <laughs> no, I'm just rambling. No, that's... <clears throat> That's really, I never thought about it that way before. And MLK is another example of, of uh, obviously, of Christian nonviolence and eff- affecting the uh, spirit, mm-hmm. the same spirit that resurrected Christ, the same spirit that uh, rose Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is capable of affecting change in a seemingly hopeless situation. Right, the hopeless situation is well. We need to be violent against violence because that's the only way, right? But actually, there's this different narrative, and I, I like to call it Catholicism's uh, unknown, best kept secret, is that uh, we have this understanding of nonviolence from the martyrs, from from those who give their life for Christ, and we've yet to even like talk about it. We've yet to really unpack it. As a, as a way, I think Walter Wink was a, a non-Catholic who wrote a book called The Third Way, and uh, it's kind of under, under that same understanding of it's not a violence, it's not a passivity, it's this third way, this Christian, Christian non-violence. But it's believing in love, that love is capable of doing something, as opposed to uh, just two ways of violence or passivity. I think that's also kind of the um, the crux of why I ended up caring so much about being involved in policy because I'm also a very integrated person in that I can't separate my Catholicism from the everything else that I do, which is a great thing, and people want that, and they fight for that, and I recognize that, but it's also a really difficult thing sometimes because you can't separate it, and it can be really overwhelming. Um, but one of the reasons I feel really passionately about policy is because I feel like there are two extremes sometimes in conversations 
of this like extreme passivity or this extreme sort of rigor in policy debate. And if you come in as a Catholic and your stances are sort of a, a peaceful middle ground, a reasoned and a logical and a um, really robust middle ground, you get kind of sort of swept aside as like a tepid moderate, which is not what you are, <laughs> um, because you're actually very reasoned, very logical, and very robust. Um, but um, these two extremes are sort of being trying to be held in tension, and they sort of just sweep aside this middle ground. But I think that the middle ground is really needed in these conversations because it is the peace-building middle ground, um, and it's this third-way concept. But... Um, but there's not enough of those voices in those rooms. And I think a lot of those voices, when they first get in those rooms, feel very drowned out. And so they run from those rooms and they end up in other rooms, which are just as important, like nonprofit sectors and um, and um, social work professions and um, all these other really, really important fields that need Catholics. But um, then there's no one in policy work. And there's lonely people in policy work <laughs> that are Catholics. So I think, um, I don't know, I, I wish more people were in policy work like me, <laughs> but there's definitely um, few, few of us, few voices like us that are there um, sort of trying to pull the two extremes together and have those conversations. But yeah, I definitely see that. So how do you be Catholic? and do policy work without uh, having your beliefs be pushed on others? Without me feeling like I have to push my beliefs on others? No, without other people feeling that you're pushing their beliefs on others. Oh. Well, the thing about... the Hmm. I actually think that, for the most part... Catholic beliefs are pretty widely applicable because they just fit humanity best <laughs> when you really break them apart and talk about why they are, um, I don't know, when you get into the mean potatoes of why they fit the human person, they just fit the human person. So if you can find someone who's willing to listen and you can sort of unpack them, they, they really do fit. <laughs> so, um, Unless you're like beating people over the head with them. And there's certain ones, you know, when you when you talk about reproductive health and rights, it can be very complicated and it can feel very pushy and you really have to have delicate conversations about it. Um, and I am willing to do a separate podcast on that because I have thoughts on how to do that. But it's that's a different conversation, in my opinion. But I feel like Catholic conversations about immigration, I I feel confident talking to people on the left and the right and like getting people there from the Catholic perspective on, on immigration um, because I think the Catholic perspective fits when it comes to immigration. And I feel that way about race and I feel that way about a lot of, of different sort of hot button topics. If I can just sit down with people on both sides and talk them through the Catholic perspective. And I feel that way about reproductive health and rights. It's just a more delicate conversation because it's really wrapped up in a lot of trauma. Um, rightfully so. Um, but for the most part, I really do believe that the Catholic perspective on a lot of these issues, it, it is intrinsically, like, fits deeply with the human person. So I don't feel like, I don't know if that makes sense. That's I just good. don't yeah, feel so like it ends true. up feeling pushy, but it feels yeah. pushy depending on how you're presenting it. And if you're presenting it from the posture of Christ or not, if you're presenting it from I'm right and you're wrong and I want to win this conversation and I want to have a gold star at the end of the day, and I want to walk away right, then you're not going to win. It's going to be pushy, and they're going to walk away hating Catholics. But if you enter the conversation with Christ's posture, being okay with the fact that they may not agree with you when you walk away, but they may, not, they may like Catholics a little bit more than they did when you started talking to them, and that's okay enough for you as that conversation ends then I think you can make some headway. And that's every conversation I enter into is like, I just want to be a Catholic they don't hate at the end of this. <laughs> and I think for the most part, I do that. I mean, all of my non-Catholic friends, I'm a Catholic that they're okay with, which is great. Um, 
So I think it's, and that's the posture of Christ because too. They, he was like, yeah. I don't have to convince you when I walk away, but I want you to know that if you ever need something, you can come to me. And they did. They flocked to him. And eventually he took them all to heaven. So, I mean, it worked. That posture works. It's just the long game. It's not, I'm going to win this conversation and walk away victorious every single time. He always played the long game, which is not the most rewarding all the time in the moment, but it works. But if it's true and if it's good, then it actually fits humanity, like you said. Yep. Like if this is a true statement or this is a true posture, then this is actually going to help. Mm Mm-hmm. There's also situational, though. Like, you can tell when this is not the time or the place or this person isn't in a position or they haven't come to a part of their story or a moment in their trauma to be able to receive this information. You can tell. And then it's really just a pride game for you to try and drop that on them. I've also been in that situation where I've been like, I can tell based on your experience that if I try to tell you this right now, it's just going to hurt you and it's just going to feel like points for me. And so I don't need to try and give you this truth because this truth is just going to be weaponized against you and then you're never going to hear it. And that doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve the truth and Mm. it's not what Christ would have done. So, Because sometimes all Christ did was gaze at people. He didn't open his mouth and that's also a posture of his. So it's also sort of reasoning through... What expression of Christ's posture did he employ in different moments, depending on what that person needed? Um, And all of those expressions are valid, but it's not always sort of throwing truth at people just because you feel like they need it in that moment. Um, I don't know. It's a negotiation, but... Yeah, well, it's a a solidarity. It's a movement towards that solidarity. Mm -hmm. So I try to do that in my own ministry of... I've tried to identify where people are and then to go to that place where people are. So it's a, it's a movement of understanding and it's a movement of solidarity. And oftentimes it's a movement of compassion, of being able to suffer with them and if they're in a suffering situation. Uh, but to identify where they are and to sit with them kind of in that uh, particular place uh, so that you can kind of enter into their heart and point and look around with them and what they're looking at and uh, assist them in helping move forward towards some sort of truth. Mm-hmm. So like entering in and then directing them. It's almost like walking with them together towards the truth mm-hmm. as opposed to just being on the outside, pointing at something, expecting them to get there without actually doing the hard work of entering in and feeling what they're feeling, uh, the compassion the, to suffer with, and feeling the weight of their world with them, even if it's for a moment, and you, even if you can't understand it fully, it's just that, that gesture of taking, helping take on their world with them. And then, like you said, being willing and inviting to walk with them towards some sort of freedom, towards some sort of peace, towards some sort of truth and some beauty and the good life. Mm -hmm. And also I think, um, and I've definitely gotten better at this in the last couple of years, but, um, and this is definitely less of a posture of Christ because he did have all of the truth (laughs) and more of a posture of humanity because I am human, but remembering that I don't have all of the truth and that some of the, tr- the truth that I do have, which is the Catholic faith, um, I, I'm still limited in my understanding of it and I'm still discovering bits and pieces and I'm, I'm still uncovering a lot of it and I'm still developing my understanding of it. And so there may be moments where I'm sort of blindsided by a realization and there's humility in that blindsidedness. <laughs> and... Um, So when I'm sort of having those moments of trying to invite someone into truth, um, I also need to be sort of steeped in humility and okay with having one of those moments of I need to take a step back and reflect on this sort of corner of this truth that I hadn't thought about before. And and maybe I need to 
unpack that and research that and read about that and talk to someone about that and then come back to that. Um, because it's really inconceivable that at 20, almost 25, I would have all of this figured out enough to go out to the masses and tell everyone about it in full and then answer all their questions and just drag everyone to heaven. That's probably not the case. Um, but we can sometimes get on this like truth high, like we've got it all. And that can also be really damaging because if someone else believes that about us and then sees us have a crisis of faith because we kind of put off this um, air of we've got it all down, it can just also be kind of in a way scandalous. Um, and it's better for us just to be honest with people that we're inviting in that we're also figuring it out. And that's a beautiful part of our faith too. Um, so that when they have those moments, they don't feel like that's sort of an anomaly either. Um, cause that happens to you your whole life. And that's sort of part of the invitation until you die, is that you you constantly have those moments. So, I don't know. I think a part of it is also just this, like, constant humility, um, which is the piece that reminds us that we are not Jesus all the time, although he was humble, but we don't have the full, the full, full picture, um, which is what always brings us back to him and not just us on our own, which is great. You mentioned having this integration um, that integration is really a blessing. It's a gift. It's something that I've had to intentionally work on personally in terms of like, all right, there's all these different facets of my own life. There's family life, there's school life, there's my, there's my academic life, there's my interactions with other people, there's what I do in my free time, um, there's how I pray and how I see the world and how I understand the things of the world. And so all of this stuff is like within me and my own mind, my own heart. And to integrate that and to apply, uh, I guess, love, apply Christ's love, apply Christ's heart to my heart, it slowly integrates the whole thing and it changes you. It changes your outlook, I would say. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday about the the how scripture talks about spiritual sight of being able to see. Uh, and that's one way of, that's one piece of the puzzle. But like the more that you encounter Christ, the more that you're in proximity with Christ, the more that your sight changes and you start to see, Oh, well in my free time, I'm actually doing this or I want to do this. And that's kind of disconnected or disjointed from how I'm trying to live. But you start to see it. And then you start to see how other people as well, outside of you, oftentimes within the church, are also like disconnected and disjointed and, and so forth. Uh, but that integration piece, it's 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 almost like the it's the avenue towards your fullness of humanity or your fullness of self, your wholeness. Uh, and I think holiness shines forth through that integration. The private school that I went to, they like really pushed integral formation, which essentially is that they, the whole business model of the school is that they wanted you to integrate your academics and your spiritual and your, um, like all these different component parts of your human experience in your, uh, day to day campus life. So we just grew up sort of piecing those things together. And so we would pray before all of our sports events and we would, um, they would bring in our academic, like, um, like our teachers would coach our sports and our all these different things. All these all these pieces were connected, um, and so in a way, I was sort of trained to like puzzle piece those things together. Um, which is kind of an aside because that's not quite how I look at it now. But in that way, I just grew up with um, with a tendency not to compartmentalize so much um, because of that, and so. Um, which I think I also just naturally don't compartmentalize. I tend to, things tend to bleed out in my life. Um, but as far as being more integrated now, I think I just naturally am a little bit more integrated as far as my prayer life goes because I, um, I just uh, tend to have a running like internal monologue 
slash dialogue going, which is a great thing. Um, so, which sounds very mystical, and <laughs> it's not. It's not like I'm, like, chit-chatting with God all the time, but it's more so just, like, I, I throw things up there to the heavens while I'm doing stuff. So, like, if I'm at Trader Joe's picking out flowers, I, like, throw something up there about the flowers and whatever. And it's just a habit I have, which is great. So in that way, I'm just, um, all of those things are connected. But because of that, I also like while I'm doing my policy work and I'm, and I'm reading about, um, oh gosh, like I was coding all these, um, instances of genocide in Angola, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases of genocide in Angola, which was just like really, really heavy, case studies to read about because it was very detailed cases. Um, it's not so much that I was like praying while I was reading them, but I was just very conscious of my, of the, the spiritual weight of reading them. Um, and it was like weighing on me very emotionally, but whenever I, something weighs on me emotionally to me, it's like also very spiritual, I guess. Um, in so much as like I wanted to pray after I read them because I just wanted to like channel how sad it all was. Um, and so in that way, it's very integrated. And, um, whenever I'm like working through a policy issue that's human rights related, my first reaction is to read through the compendium of Catholic social teaching on that issue before I then like research scholarly articles. So I guess in that way, what I mean by integrated is just like my first reaction is to see what the church says about something. And it won't necessarily mean that in my papers I cite the church. It's just like, I want to know what the church says. And then I will cite, you know, all these things from JSTOR. Um, but I guess I've just trained myself to include the church in my, in my dialogue on these issues. Um, and then as far as, like, integrated into my family and my friends and everything... Um, my family is still pretty Catholic, so that's just natural that comes up. And then my friends just <laughs> know me as the Catholic one. <laughs> so they ask me how mass was without really knowing what mass is, which I think is great. <laughs> and, um, I don't know. I just, I think I talk about things enough to where they talk about things. And, um, if you're looking to be a more integrated person, in general, those of you listening, which is a weird thing to say on a podcast, but just talk about it enough and then everyone in your life will talk about it because they know that it's important to you and then it'll naturally become an integrated part of your life because people will talk about things that are important to you, to you, which I learned by doing it, which was great. Um, but yeah, I think what I mean by integrated is that I just, I didn't want to be someone who dropped off in college from Catholicism. I think that was, like, the testimony that everybody gave me while I was in high school at every retreat was, like, yeah, I went to college and just, like, went to the Church of Waffle House and, like, never went back to real church, and that's all that happened. And I was, like, well, I don't want to be that person. So I just always went to Mass on Sunday and then just, like, never shut up about Catholicism so that everyone would talk to me about it so that I just wouldn't be the person who stopped going. And it worked. <laughs> and I think I may have gotten more into it by accident by doing that so I guess that's what I mean also one thing that helped me a lot to your point of like um integrating like a posture of love into your day-to-day -day life is that I changed this is a really simple change but instead of having a to-do list because I'm a list maker in that I even put like make a list about this on my list which is next level <laughs> but um I changed my to-do list to be a to-love list which was a really simple change, but a huge change in perspective because now, like, annoying things that I have to get done, I actually do with the perspective of, like, who am I loving by doing this thing I don't want to do? And it's helped a lot. So, that's Could you give an example of that? Of an annoying thing I don't want to do that I have to do? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> what, are you, what do you mean? <laughs> of, of, love, of loving someone, of, of being intentional in that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, yeah. So, for example, I, um, like, I had to drive all the way back home to return um, my parents' HSA card because I bought 
glasses with their HSA card, and I didn't want to drive an hour and 15 home with it, but they really needed it for my mom to get her prescriptions. So I put it on my to-do list, which is now a to-love list, and I just, like, made the drive and prayed my rosary on the drive and returned the HSA card. But it, like, helped to have the perspective shift of, like, this is actually an act of love for my parents. Also, they can now get their prescriptions, which is a huge act of love. Um, And it's, like, a simple thing that I can do because I have the time. But as opposed to, like, a to-do list item, which holds feels like it holds no weight at all. Um, and so it, it just, yeah. It, or a heavyweight. Or a heavyweight. So it, it, I feel like it changes the, the value of the act, um, even though the act hasn't changed. Yeah. Which also, then things that don't end up on your to-do list or your to-love list, you look at them differently because you train yourself to see, like, who am I serving by doing this thing? Um, which is just a good kind of way to look at everything that you're doing. Yeah. You're consecrating it. And you see when people do things for you, you recognize them as like, wow, that was, someone was serving me by doing that or, yeah. It's just a good perspective change. You consecrate it or you bless it. Mm-hmm. You make it holy. You make it holy. Yeah, that's powerful. Hmm. The... Uh, the phrase is integral human development. Oh. Integ- <laughs> After 15 years, I really should have caught on to that. <laughs> integral human development, IHD. Okay. Is, uh, it can be applied to ourselves or it can be, can be applied to others, which is an integrated human development. So serving others in, with all aspects considered, right? So going back to the mission work that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, mission work can oftentimes be something that's not done well. It can actually hurt communities. Uh, it can be somewhat objectifying. And yet integral human development says, okay, well, uh, it's an educated approach of saying, okay, what are all the areas that folks need help in that we're not considering? And usually that it takes, it requires someone on the local level, subsidiarity, Mm-hmm. Someone on the most local level of being able to say, well, this family's dealing with this or our community is have had this affect us last week or two weeks ago. So integral human development says that, all right, there's all these different areas of life. Uh, how do we best uh, serve and, and love all of these various different areas? Yeah, it's applied to uh, when I was doing work with Catholic Relief Services. It's a, it they applied it to just about everything. It's like, all right, well, you need a cash card. You need a cash card because you need to go get some new glasses, and you don't have any money. So we're gonna fill out some paperwork to get you some cash cards to go so that you can go get some glasses, so that you can go back to work, and so that you can go back to work, so you can help uh, bring in an income to help bring in an income to uh, feed your kids that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like a uh, something that you wouldn't think about, right? Something that you wouldn't think about uh, isn't immediate need, but actually it's the long game, mm-hmm. right? It's the long-term game of how do we help all individuals with an integrated approach. The way that I define the common good is the good of everyone everywhere and all aspects of everyone everywhere. For all of time. Mm-hmm. For you all covered of. all your bases. Yeah. So it's everything. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's so when we talk about integration of like, there's so many aspects of everybody. Mm-hmm. The good of, see, the common good is the seeking the good of everyone everywhere. So all over the globe mm-hmm. in every aspect of our community here uh, and all aspects of everyone. So they're uh, all of their economic situations or their health situations or their family situations, their social situations, their reproductive situations, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then for all of time. So not just looking at right now, but also in the future Mm -hmm. as well. The common good. And it's really challenging because once you start to think like that, you start to see how far behind we may be, how much work we have mm-hmm. to do. 
So that's why I appreciated your stance of believing that it can actually change and believing that there is a hopefulness that we can actually impact the good of everyone everywhere in all aspects of every of everyone everywhere for all of time. We are capable of impacting that in a positive sense so that it's humanizing so that it's it bring has people experience more fullness of life. Mhm. And yeah. I think you have to recognize I think this is what I was trying to get at earlier is that I I'm Passionate is probably not the right word, but I'm passionate about recognizing man-made problems because if you don't recognize man-made problems, then what's the point of developing man-made solutions? So if we just chalk everything up to these, like, huge, you know, um, uh, act of God, like, momentum trends that are happening... Um, so for instance, like, uh, COVID is just a, a surprise, um, disease that happened. True. But then the way that it was mishandled, problematic, mishandled by men. That's something that we can work on. That's something that we can try not to have happen again in the future. But if we chalk it all up to just the fact that the disease is not man-made, then we're sort of negating the ways that human beings can correct paths in the future. So my point from earlier and to your point now is just that if we don't recognize problematic man-made policies that have problematic externalities or problematic sort of um, effects, then we're discounting the fact that there is hope in the way that human beings can contribute like hopeful policies or 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 um, policies that can help people, um, because if everything is sort of void of of the um, the freedom of man or the ways that man contribute, then what's the point of any of us contributing anything at all? Um, so I think it's important to sort of like hold accountable and point out problematic policy in so much as then we can contribute hopeful policy, um, but we have to sort of point out problems if we're gonna contribute solutions. I like the original definition that you had of posture, the posture of Christ in how to approach people and how to approach policy, how to approach our neighbor, how to approach ourselves. I think it's a helpful, at least for me, it's been a helpful definition to go back to because there's always going to be new issues um, and new sort of intricacies that pop up over time. There are situations that um, the international community or even the U.S. is facing that we weren't facing 20 years ago, that we didn't even have the language for 20 years ago, that we're dealing with now. And the beauty of the church is that we can apply the exact same principles to it. We don't have to come up with new principles just because there are new issues. Um, But it can get really complicated if we feel the pressure to come up with new principles because there are new issues. Um, just because there are so many words floating around. And so what has helped me is to simplify things by acknowledging that there are new issues, and so therefore there are new terms, (laughs) Um, but simplifying the Catholic social teaching side of things for myself by just relying on that definition of a posture um, in those moments. So regarding a new issue and then going back to the posture of Christ and then regarding a new issue and going back to the posture of Christ. And then from there I can unpack the terms of Catholic social teaching when I'm ready to, but not sort of having this constant, like a jumble of vocabulary in my head. Um, just because there can be sort of this constant adding to the bag of words sort of happening. Um, because again, like there, there won't be a need for more Catholic social teaching principles over time. These really are really foundational and they do cover all of our bases, but there will, as we've seen, be new sort of issues that crop up. Like nuclear issues were not an issue a hundred years ago, but they are now. And so we can assume that there may be a new technology in a hundred years that we're going to have to deal with, but these principles will still apply. So that's in that way, I found that the posture idea is really helpful. Um, because 2,000 years ago, his posture 
can now apply to nukes, which is so fascinating. (laughs) Um, So that's helped me a lot just to like calm myself and be like, okay, this is still applicable. (laughs) You don't have to get crazy here. Um, But yeah, it's been helpful. It's not a, it's not a program or a series of codes that you need to to update it, like formulate (laughs) and, and solve. Yeah. That's something that is embodied. Catholic social teaching as something that is embodied. Uh, the same power that resurrected Christ is the same power that is operating through us that we are embodying into policy. Mm-hmm. Effecting change for the person who's overlooked uh, or who's just trying to get by or uh, the person who has no more hope and uh, that impact has uh, a huge impact. Mm-hmm. That influence has a huge impact. It's also um, one thing that's always been fascinating to me is that so the principles come from Christ, right? <laughs> come from Christ. Christ is not this like sterile, stagnant being that is no longer creating, right? He's like living and creative and organic um and and um in that way there's still a creative application of these principles happening constantly which is why we don't have to update the principles there's a creative application of those principles to all these new issues that are arising and that is something that i also find really hopeful is that as these new issues are coming up and we're having to figure out how does how does the common good get accounted for in this new scenario um, that's, I think, where my prayer is the most fruitful, is just praying over, like, how does your heart beat for this situation when this situation is, like, a totally new situation, um, given these principles, and there's, like, a creative energy that's flowing there, because just because this is a situation that wasn't here when Christ walked the earth doesn't mean that his heart doesn't beat for it, and that's a really interesting concept for me, um, which is true for really anything that's happening on the earth right now. And it's true for each and every one of us because he wasn't, I mean, we weren't here when he walked on the earth. But that's a really hopeful conversation for me to keep having with myself when anything happens that kind of disturbs my peace is like, how does, in what ways do you weep for this? In what ways does your heart beat for this? Like, how are you emoting for this? And in what ways can I emote with you for this? And then how should I act in response to that emotion for this? Um, in line with these principles is like a really fruitful conversation for me to have before I then act. Um, Just kind of in tandem with working through that kind of conversation. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting prayer as well because it's a, it's like a spiritual solidarity, right? Uh, A spiritual solidarity, meaning that like I can, sit in the heartache of this, even if I'm not with that person and pray in that space that that heartache opens up and the confusion that's there and the the questions that's there from, you know, why do bad things happen to good people uh, and sitting in that and praying in that and in a sense interceding for it. But there's this really powerful prayer, um, what do you call it? A prayer style, which is that kind of solidarity, spiritual solidarity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's kind of, it's the way that I pray a lot because I work with folks and and number of uh, issues and traumas and and you encounter folks and they're uh, on some sort of periphery or existential periphery. And they're going through whatever. And so, like, it, it, it moves me to a place of mourning with and lamenting with uh, and suffering with, which is compassion. And the way that I pray is just to sit in it and to sit in that solidarity, uh, to be in solidarity or to sit in that spiritual uh, communion, in a sense. I think for me it's humanizing. I think it it reminds me of of um, the love that God has for the world, and the the term that you use is how does your heart beat for it? 
uh, I think it, in a sense, it'll it makes our heart beat when we enter into it. Like it sometimes it rebeats our heart. Sometimes our our my heart, for example, can stop beating with the same lifefulness or the same life until it encounters someone else. And then I enter into that prayer posture, that solidarity, and then all of a sudden my heart's beating again. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's humanizing in that sense. It's hard to explain uh, that uh, spiritual solidarity, but it's it's been, I mean, there's nothing else to, that you can do. Like it, in the moment, I should say, like you can't just solve the problem. But I feel like it, at least for um, for Catholics, it's kind of the most essential starting point, especially when you're engaging with social issues before getting involved. And it's the whole, like, thoughts and prayers and then words and actions. <laughs> you can't stop with thoughts and prayers. That's great. You got to do them. But it's not a good start and stop. Um, and then words and actions just fall pretty flat if you never thought and prayed about them first. (laughs) Um, But I feel like that kind of prayer is a really good starting point to then build words and actions off of because it grounds you and motivates you sort of from the right perspective Um, because it does sort of root you in that compassion and... I don't know, I feel like, especially just in this last couple of months with all of the different, I mean, just the really traumatic news media that has been happening, um, it's been really tough to figure out the best way to navigate and the best way to be a compassionate neighbor and the best way to be a compassionate friend, um, given, especially given all of the different racial traumas that have been happening. And that has been my most consistent sort of prayer framework in all of that has just been Um, like show me how to grieve based on how you're grieving what has been happening. Um, Like how are you grieving for your children that are grieving right now as my prayer to Christ? And then let me grieve in that way and then show me what to do based on that grief. And that has just been my only prayer (laughs) Um, after every single thing that I've read. And just following that rhythm over and over again and starting there in every conversation that I have with any friend and any conversation I have with any stranger. Um, But I think it's just been a really humbling and fruitful starting point um, because it does bring you to your knees with how much you don't know about a situation and how much you don't understand about the the suffering of somebody else or the the pain of somebody else because you're starting from a point of um, expressing your your lack of understanding that's like the first part of the prayer is show me what I don't know basically Um, which I think is a really powerful sort of um, admission Um, and sometimes I think starting prayers with admissions is a really good place to start (laughs) because you're just sort of laying it out there um, and you're unclenching your fists just to start with um, which can be the scariest part but yeah I think it's a good place to start usually. Yeah, it's the place to start. But then you said that advocacy and yeah, advocacy follows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important dynamic. Um, Over-spiritualizing would be not moving to advocacy. Right. Um, A humanism that isn't rooted in the heart of Christ is only advocacy. Right? Or only humanitarianism Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there's this juxtaposition this both and of how do we feel it pray for it and fight for it stand up for it how do we enter into it spiritually in this spiritual reality and at the same time uh, advocate for it write letters um, work for justice Mm mm-hmm how do we sit with folks in their suffering and also help them in it? And how do we, how do we be okay with being clumsy about it all? <laughs> I think uh, human beings are really scared of being clumsy. We want to do it right the first time. 
um, or we don't want to do it at all oftentimes. And that's something that I've had to just get over is that I make that prayer and then I enter into the second stage and I just have to ready, set, go into the second stage and be okay with being clumsy and be okay with being corrected and then adjusting my sails and trying again and then going back into the first stage and then doing it again. And it's uncomfortable because I'm learning. But um, I think there's a lot of humility in being wrong <laughs> and learning um, about, yeah, how to be how to be a good neighbor, how to be a good contributor to the common good, and how to be okay with finding out that maybe you're not doing it the best way, but you could be doing it better, and here's how, and then adjusting based on that feedback. Um, and that really is true for any sort of contribution in Catholic social teaching. There are, there are good ways and there are not so good ways, and that was one thing in my experience with mission work is that I just sort of rode the wave of some mission work opportunities that I was extended and I did them and then I came back from them I had a great time found out later that they weren't maybe structured the best way for the communities unpacked that felt kind of guilty about it learned from it and have since adjusted the way that I approach mission work and it was an uncomfortable realization but I've adjusted and I think that was a really like beneficial experience in so much as now I know um but I think Kind of after you have that experience of um, approaching Christ in prayer and asking for that openness of how to grieve with him um, and how to approach suffering with him and then moving into that advocacy space, also just having the humility to stumble through the advocacy space, um, but the determination to like learn from it and get back up and keep trying is also a prayer in itself because you're not necessarily going to thrive in the advocacy space right off the bat um, because it's also a really messy space <laughs> on purpose because there's something there that has to be fought for and fighting for something is not clean cut or else it wouldn't need to be fought for um, and I don't I don't think that at least I I wanted it to be really easy and make me look really good to be fighting for something but that's not how it works so I think I don't know I think that's a lesser expected stumbling block is that it's a clumsy space to be in and that's a whole nother kind of area where you have to ask for humility it's that second stage too Catholic Dogs Podcast. The Catholic Center is located at 1344 South Lumpkin Street. For more info on how you can get involved, check out our Instagram at Catholic Dogs. See you at Mass.